0: Train atomic
1: This is Our American Stories, where we love to hear your stories about a loved one who's passed or about your very first job as a kid. And we've done a whole lot of stories from you and by you in your own voice. And today, well, this story is about a quirk. Yes, a quirk, and we've all got them, and we've all got a story around our quirks, and our families have certainly stories about our quirks. Well, a listener and a friend in Chicago, Nick Zagoda, joins us now against his wife's advice to discuss his hygiene quirk. Nick, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, Lee. It's always good to speak to you.
1: You bet. And Nick, we hear that great Chicago accent. We love accents on this show. And uh, tell us a little bit and tell the audience what you do for a living and why your wife just implored you not to do this.
2: Well, I've been a lifetime Chicagoan. As you can tell, I've tried to lose this accent for 60 years and I gave up about 20 years ago. And uh, Twenty years ago, when I was 40, I gave up. I'm 60 now. I've lived here my whole life, and uh, and it, it's part of me, I guess, and I can't get rid of it. I have a law practice downtown in Chicago. I've got two partners, and we've got 11 other lawyers that work for us. We're corporate and transactional lawyers who do sophisticated uh, corporate and transactional and M&A work on a, on a daily basis, both nationally and internationally. And when I told my wife, my friend Lee wanted to speak about this today. She said, "Are you out of your mind? Telling people about this? If I were you, I'd be hiding it." <laughs> but I don't think I've got anything to hide. I don't think I think everybody's got something, and and this happens to be mine.
1: Well, that's good, and you're owning it, and I love that. So let's talk about it. This hygiene thing you have—there's some kind of story that encapsulates it all about you and a commuter train. Tell the story, Nick.
2: Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not so good with people and uh, shaking hands and eating at communal tables and et cetera, et cetera. people i know are fine people i don't know i have no idea where it started i just uh don't feel good in positions where i don't know people and we're very close and i never take the train i've been driving downtown from my suburban home where my wife and i have lived for 38 years to uh downtown chicago every day for 38 years and my wife will tell me on occasion what are you crazy you're complaining about the traffic why don't you jump on the train and I say cast a train we're just close to people we don't know we could get a private train car where I could pick the people that come on the train car that I knew that they don't have to be young or old rich or poor nice or mean I just have to know them unfortunately that's not the way the commuter system works in Chicago so they're with strangers on the train and last winter it was a horrible day we had two or three feet of snow and it was still snowing, and I said to my wife, I have to get downtown today. And She said, well, get on the train. It'll, you know you're going to get there. It's not going to take you two and a half hours to get there and two and a half hours to get home. And I said, Ken, I just can't do the train. She said, you have to do the train. It's crazy to drive. It's, you're, it, you might get stuck downtown. You don't know what's going to happen. Well, I got on a train. I got on a train at my little suburban train stop. It's about a 35-minute train ride. I was fine till the next stop. A woman got on and sat next to me. I text my wife. I said, "Kath, I, I don't know if this is going to work." There's a woman sitting next to me on the train. She said, "Nick, you're on the train. There's going to be someone sitting next to you. Just relax. You're fine." The woman takes her coat off. She puts her takes her coat off, and it's on my leg. I text my wife, Kath. There's a woman next to me on the train. She take she's taking her coat off, and now her coat is on my leg. And Kathy texts back very nicely. Please just ask her to remove your coat from her coat from your knee, and everything will be fine. And I said, ma'am, pardon me, but your coat is on my knee. And she gives me a glaring look, and she moves her coat from my knee. Then she starts coughing. And I said to cat in the text, Kat, now she's coughing. And I'm getting freaked out here. I think you're going to have to pick me up at the next stop. And she said, okay, listen, if you think I'm going to pick you up at the next stop, you're out of your mind. So you <laughs> figure this out, look out the window, ignore the coffin, read your book. I'm trying to read my book. I can't read my book. The woman's coughing. So now she starts sneezing. This is two stops later. So I tell my wife the University of Chicago is between my house and downtown Chicago. I say, Kathy, you have to pick me up. I have to get off the train at the University of Chicago. This woman is now she's sneezing and she's not covering her nose and, and I'm in a mess and I don't know what to do and I can't. There's nowhere to go. There's people standing in the aisles of the train. I can't possibly move. I can't do it. You have to pick. And she said, "Listen, genius. If I drive to the University of Chicago, it'll take me two hours to get there. Then it'll take both of us two and a half or three hours to get home. So here's what I suggest you do. I suggest you forget about this for a while." And get, I said, "You're not going to come and say she. I am not going to come and save you." She did not come and save me. I survived, rather scarred, I might add, <laughs> but I survived. Went downtown, went straight to uh, the Union League Club in Chicago, where I've been a member forever, took a shower, changed my clothes, and was able to go to work for a full day without working. But thank goodness I have a change of clothes there, or otherwise, that would never, ever would I have been able to last a full day.
1: And thanks for that story, and you're listening to Nick Zagoda, and he's a lawyer in Chicago and a friend, and this segment, well, it's my quirk, is what we're calling it, and We want to hear your quirk and send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We've all got one, folks, and just confess, confess, share it with us. I mean, I love the way Nick owns his. He just owns his. One day I'll write up mine. Uh, Mine's just as embarrassing as his, and it's got to be embarrassing. And so whatever your quirk is, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Nick Zagoda's quirk Well, a lot of our quirks, those of us who are neat freaks, and I am one, I never step into a public shower without something on my feet, ever. People look at me funny. I don't care. I'm wearing something on my feet or I ain't getting in. My quirk, just one of them, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on this show, and that's family, love, faith, music, movies, food, and yes, we talk a lot about work and a lot about education because that's a big part of our lives, and we hear so often from young people and parents alike about this problem called education, and does everyone need to go to college? And in this 21st century, there are so many good jobs chasing not nearly enough Qualified applicants and what to do about it, what to do about it. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we were doing what we do. Sometimes we're watching stuff on TV so you don't have to. And there was a woman, Ginny Rometty, who was the CEO of IBM, and she was talking at this governor's conference. And all the governors of the country are there, and they're there to talk about this problem. Their schools, all the money we're spending as taxpayers in our respective states and as a federal government, and what are we doing to solve this problem, this skills problem in this country, and should every kid go to college? By the way, Ginny Rometty is the CEO of IBM, but no one would have ever thought this woman was going to be such a thing, because, well, at the age of 15, her father, well, he just got out of Dodge and left her mom to raise four kids. Without the help of another provider. But Jenny went to Northwestern, rose up IBM, and became again this CEO. And here she is defining the problem to this audience again of governors of all 50 states.
3: This is not a world where everybody has to be a data scientist. If we paint a vision that the only people with good jobs are everyone with a four year college degree or a phd i think that cre- that is not what this world can do it is going to create a division that is even larger in this country between the haves and the have nots you cannot there must be good paying jobs and i think it's quite possible we played around with a term called new collar which said we can see it it's not a four year degree Think of it as with less than a four-year degree, maybe you want to call it a six-year high school, you can get a very good, productive job in the data economy in many, many different fields. So we set out on this. It's now been six years that we started down this path. Coined it new collar, so not blue collar, not white collar. Tried to have no stereotype that would be a negative stereotype with this.
1: But the problem for students and companies alike is that very few schools or other institutions are preparing young people for these new college jobs. So IBM decided to take action with their own Pathways in Technology program to reinvent education. It is a public-private partnership that spans grades nine to 14,
3: combining high school, college, and a career. We will now be up to 120. Texas is going to do another 20, seven states. Uh, As as the full pipeline of every grade is full, we'll be at more than 60,000 kids. And the idea is 120 schools, a very simple formula. And I already know it's working because I've hired a bunch of them already. They're coming out the other end. I've been at it now long enough, so i got proof. Um, The idea is simple. Take a four-year high school with a joint community college. You offer the kids the chance to get their high school degree and their associate degree at the same time. We as industry, public-private partnership, offer mentorship, electronic mentorship for the kids, and a chance at a job. Now, the curriculum, it is not like a trade school. These kids are getting a good, broad education. But it is more practical education that can be hired. And so the kids now are graduating and making double the median income. Uh, whether it's not just cybersecurity jobs, it's not just direct IT jobs, it's digital designers. And we've got, oh boy, now it's up to 400 other companies across the country helping us with taking on and giving the kids the mentorships and the internships. They even get internships during, paid internships, no less, uh, during this. And so to me, that's one way for the youth. I think it's a public-private partnership. I need the employees. Everybody I know needs the employees. I mean, the gap of jobs in this country is still millions. I just look at cybersecurity, it's going to be millions again to go forward. And even with now the Jobs Act, we can bring in back all the jobs. We don't have to train people. So to me, this is a really big deal. And when you look at the um, graduation rates out of community college, we're 400 times better than the average community college graduation rate. 85% of the kids are either graduating with your associate degree or going on to college. We started with the most underserved kids. 70% qualify for free lunch or lunch assistance, if if that's maybe kind of a a guide for underserved. And they're coming out now. So it's really something that I am so, uh, you can tell I hope, so passionate about. that, And I do believe it's a responsibility. I mean, we create this. It's our responsibility to work, public-private partnership, and there is no one better to sponsor it. There is no one who else can other than a governor.
1: And by the way, that's the sound of big, bad business, folks. Reaching out, speaking out, putting their capital on the line and saying, please help us, educators, families, America. We want to fill these jobs, and we're here to help with the training with, as she said before, electronic mentorship. We can pipe in a lot of learning from people who are on the job We're willing to give some of their time to teach. It's like apprenticeship via the Internet. We know this is possible, right? Well, I never saw a set of governors so excited to talk at one of these governor's conferences because this was real-life solutions without a burden on the taxpayers, folks. Here's Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado.
4: When one of the IBM executives came and pitched me on p tech, which was in two thousand and twelve in pathways of technologies, we call it p tech it's
3: P-tech, yeah. um,
4: but anyway, I love that IBM gave this guy leeway on IBM time to go out and go out to other states first they did in New York and then showed it could work and then said all right here's we'll we'll set up for you you guys are going to engage it so we have it in three three school districts now, and the thing that 's amazing so it 's in one of our school districts is in St. Saintrainine Valley school districts and uh, they're up there. They're in their second year there. They're our third school district, but they have a little over 100 kids. 70% come from low-income, low low-income Hispanic households. Uh, almost everyone will be the first generation, first in their generation to go to college. So that ability to provide technology pathways to everybody is really astounding. I just want to make sure that you got recognized for uh, for that leadership. Well, thank you for your leadership
3: on it too. So seriously.
4: 100 kids' lives changed forever.
1: And again, 70% of those kids in that one school district in Colorado, 70% low-income households. Next up, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland.
5: We started this in Baltimore City. We found out what you were doing from New York, and uh, we said we've got to get this in our state. And we took on, we started with two schools two of the most challenged schools in Baltimore City and teamed up with Baltimore City Community College. I was just there a couple of days ago visiting with the teachers and the, with the kids and the students. And I can tell you, we're trying to expand this all over the state. It, number one, we, you know, we're the cyber capital of America. We house NSA, and NIST, and the Cyber Center of Excellence. We have 17 universities that are cyber uh, related, 12,000 IT companies. Uh, and so we have a huge need for people with technical skills. And we're doing that all over at every level. That's not just what this is about, getting kids into uh, learning technology. To see the faces of these kids who are literally, their parents are crying because of the opportunity. They're kids that might not have ever had any opportunity or any hope for a better future that have mentors and paid summer internships and they're learning and they're excited and they see a future because of this and they're first in line for jobs at IBM or one of the other companies that sponsor. It's just an incredible program. So I know six of my colleagues are already doing it. Um, I just want to thank IBM for the innovation and encourage all of you to uh, take a serious look. It's a wonderful
3: program. Thank you. It's a, it's a funny thing, you know, the uh, all of the uh, education and because part of what we also do, the kids learn, you know, how do you eat a business meal What's the appropriate way to dress? How do you go to? I mean, there are many things you teach beyond just the content, as you saw, right? But boy, to those, I've never met a parent that didn't want a better life for their child, right? And never, no, it doesn't matter.
1: Yep, so true. And finally, Jenny suggested that we seriously consider how schooling fits into our lives. Is it really something that we can do in one big chunk
3: I think you need to rethink the education model. We are now going to be in a lifelong learning model. That is a different world because this won't be the last time. And so where we used to think you could finish your grade 12, maybe go on through university, you're done and the rest takes care of itself. I don't know, to me I've given a lot of thought about does this mean a new a new sort of continuous training model that gets put in does education really change in every state somebody's going to have to start to tackle that it's not that i'm looking for incentives that's i don't need them in a a company of our size but the small medium businesses this constant retraining that's going to go on i think is going to be a fact of life we're going to focus on
1: And it is. And, you know, you're thinking about $100,000 between the ages of 18 and 22. Well, maybe that needs to go into an education savings account for the rest of your life, for the rest of your life. What was really beautiful about this event, folks, is you were hearing from Republican governors, Democrat governors. They weren't fighting. They weren't screaming. They weren't yelling at each other. By the way, that's why it's not on the news. But it's important to the families listening, and that's why we bring it to you. Good news out there. Pathways in technology. If it's not in your school district, ask your superintendent why and push and push. There's companies out there waiting to help. Ginny Rometty's story. Let's face it, the American workers' story in the 21st century. And all of our family's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we like telling the stories about all kinds of people, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the bizarre. Which brings us to our supreme executive producer and chief proprietor of strategic irrelevance and irreverence, Jesse Edwards, with a story that is sure to tantalize all of your senses about an old school hacker. Take it away.
3: Not
0: be completed as dialed. Please check the number and d- 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 dial again.
6: This is the story of a guy known as Captain Crunch. His real name is John Draper. He's legendary in the world of computer programming and hacking. The son of an Air Force engineer who himself joined in 1964. While stationed in Alaska, he helped his fellow servicemen make free phone calls home by devising access to a local telephone switchboard.
3: If you'd like to make a call, please hang up and try again.
6: Now, in case there are any young people listening, back before we all had smartphones, we used landlines, or phones that were attached to the wall by wiring. If you
3: Help, hang up and then dial your operator.
6: And you even had to pay more money to make long distance calls, God forbid. After the Air Force, John Draper was trying to test the signal strength of one of his own pirate radio stations when he broadcast the phone number for listeners to call in to report the strength of his signal. Well, he got a response from a group of blind kids who told him about a special whistle that could be found inside boxes of Cap'n Crunch breakfast cereal. Here's John Draper.
7: Well, my claim to fame is it comes out of a Captain Crunch whistle box. If you hold up one of the holes like this and blow it, that's 2600 hertz tone. That 2600 hertz tone is what controls the AT&T American telephone system. And it was developed way back in the 50s. It got started from this, really. And I learned about the phone company system and the switching tones and I got a Captain Crunch whistle from one of the kids. So what kind of mysterious
6: power did this little whistle have over the national phone system? John Draper
7: gives us a basic demonstration. With this, you want to dial a number, you call up a, 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 like a 5551212 a information number which is free and, and then you blow it like this. And that just basically is the same thing as hanging up. You're hanging up on a trunk level, and you go a little ka sound, and then if you want to dial two, you go one, three, and you dial a number. And that was basically how you make free phone calls. That's pretty impressive. In a
6: time when you had to pay for phone calls, this guy figured out a way to hack the system with a whistle that came out of a Captain Crunch box. So next, Draper created the blue box, an electronic device that would recreate tones similar to this whistle. So I built a
7: prototype of a blue box at home. I couldn't believe it. It worked. My parents thought I'd gone stark raving mad. And you can do just about anything with a blue box you can do it as an operator. You can call the other operators, you can call routing codes, you can tap phone lines, you can route calls all over the world by you just knowing what the routing codes are. And you can stack tandems. So once
6: a long-distance call had been initiated, and the phone company heard the 2600 hertz tone, it terminated the call, but only at one end. Now the person at the open end of the line with the special whistle, or the blue box, had all the power of the telephone company operator. They could call anywhere free of charge in the world, or they could tie up phone lines of an entire city by stacking the lines. Here's a demonstration.
4: The number that's ringing at this point doesn't matter. What's important is that this call has gone over a trunk from New York to a distant 4A, which can be reset by 2600. That's the supervision handshake, off hook, on hook. And now it's waiting for new digits, which Ben will supply. That's the sound of Youngstown, Ohio, dumping us into a trunk to Canton and that's the handshake from Canton. Now we're in Youngstown again, which stacks into Canton, and then Canton gives us the handshake.
6: While the implications of this now ancient technology might be lost on some of us now, back then it caught the
7: attention of Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. What happened basically at this point, um, the blind kids got a hold of somebody from Esquire magazine article There was actually this guy, Don Ballinger, who got busted using blue boxes and uh, got real bitter toward the phone company and wanted to blow the whistle on the phone company and let everybody know about it. And uh, the phone freaks found out about it, and they contacted Don Ballinger, which is a bad mistake, and they told him about me. And then they wrote this Esquire magazine article called The Secrets of the Little Blue Box, October 1971 issue. And uh, Steve Wozniak got a hold of the magazine and uh, showed it to Jobs. And Steve says... Let's build them and make them and sell them. So that's what they did.
6: In fact, Steve Jobs' first job, or at least his first business, was selling blue boxes, the device that allowed users to get free phone service illegally. Not only that, but you could hack communication centers all over the world with the technology.
8: Here's Steve Jobs. You could you know, call from a, a payphone, uh, go to White Plains, New York, take a satellite to Europe, take a cable to Turkey... Uh, come back to Los Angeles, uh, and you go around the world three or four times and call the payphone next door and shout in the phone and be about 30 seconds and come out the other end of the, the other phone. So we actually, and these were Ill- illegal I, I have to add, uh, but in spite of that we were so fascinated by them that Waz and I actually figured out how to build one. We built the best one in the world, it was the first digital blue box in the world. And uh, we would uh, give them to our friends and use them ourselves. And, you know, you, you rapidly run out of people you want to call. But it was the the magic of the fact that two teenagers could build this box for $100 worth of parts and control hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure in the entire telephone network in the whole world.
6: But it seems like all fun and illegal things like this eventually come to an end. John
7: Draper, Captain Crunch, got busted. I got busted because... Somebody was using uh, Waz's flu box, the phone company detected it, and the person had my phone number and abused my privilege and wrote my phone number down, and that was how I got busted. Otherwise, I would have been pretty, pretty safe even today because I was very careful. Captain Crunch ended
6: up serving two prison sentences for phone fraud while serving a third prison sentence, Draper set to creating the Easy Rider, the first word processor for the Apple II. While out on work release, he had access to a computer in a small studio, though sometimes he needed to take copies of his work home to prison so he could continue working on it.
3: We're sorry. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial
6: again. But the phone hacking mischief didn't end there for our old friend John Draper here. After prison, he made a fascinating discovery while scanning 800 numbers.
7: Maybe two or three years later, and uh, discovered a very interesting phone number. Uh, it was an 800 number that uh, later I discovered it to be the White House CIA crisis hotline number. And... Uh, there was a way to tap lines back then, so we sit in on the line and listen to it for a while, and it was on an unencrypted link, and uh, somebody said, Olympus, please, and the voice on the other end sounded remarkably like Nixon.
2: People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook.
7: I wrote down Olympus, and two weeks later I went to a party and somebody wanted me to trade. Uh, somebody had this really cool number, I wanted it, and phone freaks like to trade numbers. so. I says, uh, I'll trade you a number. Would you like to have the, the CIA crisis hotline to the White House? And he says, you got what? <laughs> <laughs> so I gave him the number. But before I even had a chance to give him the number, he'd already stacked two or three, tent, two or three trunks in there calling the number. And he got, uh, got him on the line. And uh, he said, uh, sir, we have a national crisis on our hands here. He says, what's the nature of the crisis? He says, sir, we're out of toilet paper. <laughs> they hung up. First instance of punking uh, the president. Your call cannot be completed as dialed.
6: Please check the number and dial again. And that's phone-freaking-extraordinaire, the one and only Captain Crunch, John Draper. This is Our American Stories. And thank you, as always, Jesse,
1: as odd and irreverent, as always, John Draper's story, Captain Crunch's story. and this is Our American Stories. Although you may not know what auto-tuning is, there's no doubt that you've heard it. In fact, you just did, with our bumper song from the Black Eyed Peas, Boom Boom Pow. Auto-tune is an audio processor that was designed in 1997 to disguise or perfectly tune vocals or instruments that were off-pitch. Is this new music technology a good or a bad thing? And is it really new?
9: Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Auto-tune has become the Botox of pop music. But like the commonly used neurotoxin, could auto-tuning be beneficial? Let's take a closer look.
10: Tonight we present a new miracle of electricity, the sonar box. Harry Babbitt, using special sonar box units, gives diction to the tones of the instruments as they play. Harry forms the words, but the instruments sing them. Sing it, saxes! i know
9: you anyway. Here's music writer Dave Tompkins
7: like We always have this attraction from, from an early age at altering our voices I think that happens with you know, hooking up to the uh, clown balloon dispenser at a birthday party and, and here's a way to um, explore different characters and what's more human than wanting to be something else?
9: Here's musician Ben Harper
7: more bounce
10: to the ounce. I mean when that dropped, driving down Crenshaw Boulevard in LA, playing Roger or Zap, you're sure to get a girl's attention. Barvin Gay or Roger Troutman. Can't miss. Roger Troutman and Zap, to get that sound, you had to take a tube, hook it up to a, an electrical charge, and it would send an electrical current down your throat that would then go through a box and go through whatever instrument you were playing. Your voice, through the electrical charge and current that was going into your throat, was coloring whatever instrument you were playing. After an hour of recording with that thing, it heard. So now they have what's called auto-tune, and it's just the processed version of that sound, which sounds exactly like it and is equally as cool. The television show South Park has had some fun with the auto-tune
9: debate. Here's a scene where Stan has discovered some troubling news about his father.
6: Uh, Hey, Dad. I need to talk to you. The chick that wrote the theme song to the new Hunger Games movie is you? Yeah. Wait, Lord sounds like a girl.
9: Auto-tune. You want to see how I do it? I use this program to import the recordings I make on my phone. Sparkling thoughts. Give me the hope to go on. Dad, Lord's
6: music is actually really good.
9: Thanks, but it gets even better when I add the drum loops. Yeah, yeah, feeling good on a Wednesday. Then with the computer I can actually quantize everything. Feeling good, backup instruments. Dots, and yeah, then finally yeah, I use the yeah, auto tune yeah. Here's Hall of Fame singer, songwriter, and record producer Linda Perry.
11: Would you auto-tune Patti Smith? No. Carol King. No, Janis Joplin. Oh my god. She if they put autotune on Janis Joplin, she would sound like that believe.
0: Oh, do you believe in life after love?
11: And you know that's where that came from. That sound came from and I love Cher, but they must have accidentally left it on while she was singing. I know this is what happened. And then it went and they were like What is that? That's
9: cool. Here's culture writer Oliver Wang.
4: What happens a generation or half a generation later is that R&B artists and hip hop artists, they discover they actually really like the sound of autotune. They like the sound of this kind of robotic otherworldliness, something that sounds completely unnatural. One of the first people to do it in a big way that surprised a lot of people was actually Kanye West.
7: I'm that loving you
9: way I want to. Here's musician Bonnie Raitt.
11: There's something great about not fixing stuff. You know, I leave funky notes in all the time and slide notes that aren't quite up to it, and I'll, I'll, I'll tune it back up, and it just loses a lot of what, the edge to it.
9: Here again is Ben Harper.
10: Now that autotune has become a sound, if you want that as part of your sound, by all means... It's a sound, and it works. So if you want that as your sound, go. But if you want your voice as your sound, no effects. Start working on scales.
11: Here again is Linda Perry. There's not a lot of Christina's. That woman can sing and she can change her voice, and do so many wonderful things with it. Her problem is her perfectionism. That's where she gets into trouble, when she tries to perfect the vocal. Troubled waters there, but when Christina just sings, As soon as she said, don't look at me, I heard it. The vulnerability in her voice, the insecurity that, oh, she really doesn't think she's all that.
0: Every day is so wonderful, and suddenly
11: It's letting go of ego, and being open to failing.
0: Now and then, I get insecure.
11: The, beautiful thing about that version is when Christina sang it, it was just, it it was emotional. That was the take that I knew, right, that that was the master take. I added the drums and everything after the fact. And Christina kept on coming to me, I got to re-sing that, you know, when can I re-sing that? I'm like, re-sing it? Are you crazy? This is Magical, like people would die for this emotion. So, don't you bring me down today. so she kept on saying, but wait a minute, it's not, that was my first take. I'm like, I know. She's like, but I can do better. I go, I know you can. That's why you're not going to re-sing it. It's like seven months of this, like the album is, you know, done. It's being mastered and she's still going at it. So we go in the studio, put it all up, and she starts singing. And I just literally, just one time, she's st- I mean, we we're like maybe a minute into the song. If even that, I just stopped. And I'm like, we're done. And she's like, what do you mean we're done? I'm like, I can hear already, you're over singing, you're over perfecting, and you're ruining this song. I'm like, oh, what does she mean?
12: what am i doing what am i doing
11: wrong i don't understand this form of perfection and then i finally realized there is no perfection it's about finding the beauty in the cracks and the holes and the imperfections that's so perfect and beautiful it's actually about people allowing themselves to be vulnerable and insecure and not always feeling like they're gonna get everything right because That's what the true beauty of life is. It's about not really getting it right. It's just getting it right in the moment of who you are right now.
10: Certainly while all music can be a mathematical equation to varying degrees, soul isn't. Soulfulness isn't. There's such a huge, great soulful place for technology and music. There is. But there is... Place where you just go over the edge and lose the, uh, the center of the circle.
4: Every generation of people who listen and write and and think about music always fear that technology is going to create this homogenous sameness and that everything's going to sound the same. And you can find those complaints going back to the 1920s and 30s. You know, here we are, almost 100 years later, and. If you look back on the history of it, you would never say, oh yeah, music in all of these different generations and eras all sounded the same. We can always find difference. We can always find the things that stand out to us as being unique.
7: The ones that we remember are the ones that did it really well and and were different and innovative enough to stand the test of time. It's not the technology that makes great music, it's what's in your heart. We don't really... Judge a vocal on an intellectual level. What we respond to is some feeling that they're honest performances. And when we start to feel like this singer is carrying some truth to us, we make the deeper investment. This is not just the singer songwriters. It's not just that confessional mode. It's James Brown. It could be chic. But we know when it's, you know, this is where we start to run out of words and we turn to authentic.
9: For our American Stories, I'm Greg Hengler.
1: great job as always, Greg, and well, you haven't heard that one before, because I hadn't. Auto-tune versus imperfection. The story of music, in a way, and so much more in technology. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
9: American Network.org
0: What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more.
1: This is Lily Habib with our American stories. And for the next half hour, we'll be discussing a big topic, the state of love on college campuses. And I might add, this probably applies to the millennial generation and maybe even to people in their early 30s. But the focus here is on one particular college campus and one particular professor. And we're fortunate to be joined by one of the nation's true experts and contrarians on the topic. And that's Kerry Cronin, a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Kerry, thanks so much for joining us.
12: Hi there. Thanks for having
1: me. Well, you know, Carrie, first off, you're a philosopher and and so love by the way, love is not something that uh a philosophers ignore. Um but no. but dating probably and <laughs> I'm not sure Plato dug deep into dating. Um <laughs> <laughs> but how did you become such an expert that students, your your the people and the kids you teach, mentor, coach Dubbed you the love doctor? Is it through oh the philosophy classes or something more? Tell us a little about this title you've earned at Boston College.
12: Well, it is—it is kind of funny to me. I—I I, I don't consider myself to be an expert on this, but I love talking to students about their lives and about their choices and the ways uh, that they make their life decisions and their moral decisions. And um, I think it does—it has come this whole thing me being involved in this and talking to students about it had emerged in the context of philosophy classes that I teach. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at texts that, in which we're thinking about friendship and, and relationships and, and the importance of that in a community and in a person's life and flourishing. And so we sort of get to these kinds of questions all the time. But, but it was conversations with students outside of class, actually, that led me to talk really specifically about dating and hookup culture and to find out what the heck is going on out there. And students over the years, probably, I've been probably talking to students about this for eight to ten years now, very openly, and they have just been wonderful uh, in telling, being very upfront about what, what dating and hookup culture is like in college, what, how they feel about it what their anxieties, their fears and their desires are. So it's been wonderful. I everything I know I've learned from them.
1: And how did you stumble upon the specific start, talks you had about dating and relationships? How did you stumble upon this absence in their lives?
12: Well, you know, it was interesting. I I had a conversation with a group of students about gosh, it had to be 10 years ago now. I had I had worked with some students on a student program and we were going we went out for ice cream after the program just because it had gone well and I was the facilitator of a discussion it was a public discussion on on faith actually and and so we went out for ice cream afterwards and they were all seniors there were eight seniors and we we were just talking about life and life after graduation and that sort of thing and I after talking about jobs and grad schools and different options. I, I said, you know, what about what about the people you're dating? And and I got a real blank stare from them all. And I thought, what's going on? And they said, oh, we don't do that dating thing anymore where that's we just don't do that. That's not really done here. And I I pressed them on it. And after that I just started asking questions regularly about it. And students told me a lot uh, about hookup culture. I learned things that I, I thought I knew about. I learned things that I never knew about. I, I've, and I've thought about these things with students for years since.
1: Well, and it's interestingly enough, you, you learned, I, I guess, that the hookup culture, just as years ago there were dating rules, Carrie, yes. that the hookup yeah. culture itself had <laughs> rules.
12: You know, what I heard from students a lot at the beginning was, well, you know, we don't, we don't really date. We would like to keep things much more casual, and that there was this idea that that the hookup culture was the casual thing, and and that that was the easy thing. But when I when I listened to them, I realized that that it it actually looks like it's super casual, and that there are no rules, but there are lots of rules. And I say to students all the time, and they and they all agree, you have to know the rules to participate in hookup culture. Everybody knows them, but nobody speaks about the rules. And um, and if you break the rules, you're out. You know, nobody wants to have anything to do with you. So, right. so you they they figure the rules out pretty quick. And 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 the rules include, you know, so typically when I talk to students, I'll I'll run through some like the top ten rules. You know, rules like don't talk about it while it's happening. Don't ask what does this mean. You know, don't you got to learn how to use texting. You know, don't stay over. Know where, you're, you know, know where your earrings are so you can grab them when you're leaving, know where your shoes are. you know don't be awkward. You know uh, there's, there's all kinds of things that, that are part and parcel of the hookup culture that, that students know and that they figure out the rules. But as I say to them, isn't it strange that we think there are no rules and that dating is so formal, and everybody's so terrified of asking somebody out for a cup of coffee? But to get involved in hookup culture looks like it's ordinary and casual, and that there aren't rules. But but we know that we know there are.
1: You know, I want to play. Yeah. A, I want to play a clip from you. I'm going to hold on to a response, and then we'll get the response on the other side of a break, Carrie. But it's okay, a sure, it's a clip thanks. of you and a talk you gave to the Love and Fidelity Network. And then again, we'll okay. ask. You, we'll ask. We'll talk to you about it right after the break.
12: I know that students at at my university are incredibly ambitious, smart wonderful, socially just, interested in other people until about Thursday afternoon, right? And then the nighttime culture sort of gets going, and suddenly it's, it's, a different, it's a whole different scene.
1: It's a whole different scene, and we're going to get to the other side of that scene in a bit. Uh, we're joined by Carrie Cronin. She's a professor of philosophy at Boston College, but she's known at the school as the love doctor, and it's because of some of the things he's been doing with the kids as it relates to their lives and to this thing that for millennium men and women did called dating. But the millennials, it turns out, are not doing much of. And I think this will interest every parent listening. It will certainly listen, uh, excite the millennials listening because this is their lives we're talking about and not in judgment. None of that here. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and more. After this moment with the Love Doctor. This is Lee Habib, and the subject right now is dating, or the lack thereof. Something very new, actually, to millennials. They're, They're not doing it like we used to. Why? What's going on? Nobody knows about this better. No one's dug deeper into the subject. You don't know her, but now you do. And we're going to get to know her better over the coming months, and I hope years, because I don't think you can ever stop talking about a subject like this. We're talking to Carrie Cronin, who's a professor of philosophy at Boston College, but is known as the love doctor by the students there who adore her for daring them to do something that people have been doing for centuries, and it's a little thing called dating. Where we last picked up, Kerry was describing this Thursday night culture. The kids are a certain kind of wonderful child all week long, and then, well, the werewolves of London come out, so to speak, and something starts to happen. Well, let's, uh, let's continue, Kerry. Uh, Go from there.
12: So that's funny. That's a great description of it. I, I often say to students, you know the students I, I, I work with and live with here at, at Boston College are lovely. They are just hardworking, lovely young people, and they they're eager to please they're eager to work hard and compete, and they, they hold a door for you at fifty paces. It's exhausting how nice they are. <laughs> but then the nighttime culture is is really aggressive it's it's very aggressive in terms of competitive drinking, and the hookup culture is very aggressive, and they feel it. I I find, and we we all know that college students in the United States now are are very much uh, affected by anxiety and stress, and I think this has a lot to do with it. Um, They're they're busy in their daytime lives, but at night uh, it's it's rough out there, and they're trying to, to find their way and find their work out important questions about who they are and what they want in their lives, but there's not... There isn't a culture that's helping them at all.
1: No, and, you know, it, it's always been tough to be 18. Uh, so let's not forget that. <laughs> and, and it's hard for us at 30, 40, I'm, I'm in my 50s, to remember. Sure. But, my goodness, think about it just for a minute, and you'll wish you weren't 18 again after you think that's about true. it, actually. But for those of us who aren't aware... Carrie, can you paint a picture of what this, quote, nighttime hookup culture and scene looks like and why exactly it's so appealing in the end, or maybe not appealing, but what draws these students into it?
12: Sure. I think, you know, what what happened on the the college campus scene, I think, and I'm mostly talking about uh, four-year residential colleges, because I I think when I go to schools and at which the populations are uh, are not residential students. You don't you don't see this as much. People are working part-time jobs or working to get through school and they don't have time for this. But at four-year residential schools, students will often, you know, they they come off of really stressful days and the weekend uh, on the weekends they they pregame parties, which means, you know, they get drunk before they even go to parties, mostly because for instance, our campus is, is mostly a dry campus, and so they are ostensibly not drinking on campus, right. but they they have to find their ways to drink. So they go to parties, and they've got to get drunk fast. You know, the keg party script is you got to get drunk fast before the RAs or the police come and break it up. So, so it's much more of a shots culture, if you will. You know, it used to be years ago, beer was... The, the drink of choice for you know animal house kind of that scenario, but now they 're drinking hard liquor because that 's easier to to get in to to a dorm they it's so they 're drinking hard liquor fast and women are drinking or binge drinking at the same rates that men are and so so everybody's trashed and 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 everybody's sort of hyper competitive because they've these young people, these millennials have been competing their whole lives. You, bet. you know, this is this is definitely the organization kid that David Brooks described years ago. Yep. These students are they're highly programmed, they're highly competitive, highly achieving, and they want to achieve in their social lives too. And this script, the hookup script, yeah. has really become such a dominant script and it's It's associated with the keg
1: parties. But would would it it be wrong for me to assume also that uh, these high achievers are also, in a sense, conformists? I mean, they so want to get approval from their superiors, from their teachers, that in the end they'll conform to whatever the norm is in this respect?
12: Sure. Yeah, absolutely, because they've been taught, you know, they've been taught throughout their academic careers and their sports careers. You know, many of the students we have here were varsity athletes in high school there, you know they know how to how to to find out what the formula of success is and get themselves there yep. they know how to do it and and hookup culture gives them it gives them check marks you know i've I've hooked up with this many people i've hooked up with this person who I think is good looking this person who other people want you know it's it gives them markers that they can achieve and and as I say to students this is this is a movement to an exterior set of of check boxes. You know, this is but but it has lots of ramifications on your interior life. You you bet
1: lots of consequences. And we're talking, by the way, folks, with Kerry Cronin and she's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But on the side, she teaches a dating course there that's standing room only. The kids come from everywhere, because she actually challenges them to leave this hookup culture and try and do something actually that turns out to be really daring, and that is to ask someone out on a date. Before we get into that, though, Carrie, what are the five types of hookups? And folks, parents, take notes. Talk to your kids about this. Well, what are they?
12: <laughs> right. So over the years, I, uh, when I give talks to students, um, I find that what you have to do when you're talking to students about this so that you're not coming off... In, in a really judgmental way and putting them in a, in a posture of, uh, in a defensive posture, is you've got to use humor and you've got you to ask them to tell you what's going on. And what I've heard from students is are that there's lots of different reasons and types of hookups. And, and I often say to students, so there's the, there's the pure hookup, which is a one-time deal. You know, you just meet a person at a party or you... You know, And you hook up with them and that's that and you never hear from them again. Or maybe you see them on campus and you do this sort of campus look away, which is, uh, what our students call it. You just kind of look in the other direction and pretend yep. you're looking on your phone. There's the regular hookup, which is, you know, you hooked up with somebody and then maybe you see them at a party the next week or the week after that. And you kind of think, well, that worked out well. And you get a look and you understand that that's going to happen again and maybe a couple of times. Then there's friends with benefits, which I always say to students, that's crazy. I don't, that's not what I do with my friends. And Aristotle (laughs) doesn't describe friendship that way. No, he
1: doesn't. No, he doesn't.
12: (laughs) (laughs) Then there's, then there's, you know, there's, there's different uh, types of hookups, like revenge hookups or, you know, or, or uh, after you break up, uh, reuniting with the old flame hookups. There's. You know, and actually, there's many more than five. And the reason that I know there are many more than five is because every time I go to a school, students add to the list, (laughs) which is scary. (laughs) But when you can get them to laugh about it, that's also when you can get them to start reflecting on it. When you you will laugh with them and say, isn't this a little strange and ridiculous and actually not what you really long for and what you really desire. Oh,
1: you bet. You know, I'm I'm a Christian, but one of the books that influenced my life the most, actually, and weirdly, because I tell my friends this, and they go, what? But it was Martin Buber's I I and Thou. And it's always that space between the the I and Thou that we can can draw people in. And, And too often, people of faith don't allow that space to not only other people of faith, but people not of faith. Uh, yeah, we right. we have about a, a minute here. I'm, we're going to hold you over and do another segment, Kerry, because we just can't stop talking about this. <laughs> but what do you this think kid. is the cause of this present culture full of hookups but absent of love?
12: Yeah, that's that's, that's a that's the deep question. That's the sixty four thousand dollar question. I, I think I think people are looking for an easy way to to try to to put their toe into you know the water and and try to find love without any risk so when i talk to students about dating actually it's it ends up being mostly about courage not love
1: yeah but you know in the end what did aristotle say about courage it's the it's the it's the (laughs) first requirement for all of the other virtues Or something like that. And and how can you have love without courage? We're going to hold here and we're going to continue this fascinating conversation about our kids, about ourselves in the end, uh, and about life. Because it, any of us who've ever said, I love you to anybody and meant it. No, they're the three hardest words to say. And if you don't hear them back, my goodness. This is the hardest thing in the world, and that's why you don't say it, because you're not sure you'll hear it back. We're talking to Carrie Cronin, and she is the doctor of love at Boston College, and she also happens to teach philosophy at Boston College. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and more after this. is lee habib and this is our american stories and for the hour we're talking to kerry cronin and she's a professor of philosophy at boston college but she has an even more serious job there in some respects and that's counseling and coaching her young students how to do a thing called date and in the end how to think about love because we all think about it and it's a scary thing and kerry thanks so much for joining us for the hour here oh you're welcome but I wanted to read to you something from that Love and Fidelity Network interview that one girl had shared, because I think it's fascinating, and then we can pick up on this love theme. Here's what she said. She said, I have loved my time at Boston College. I have grown intellectually. I've made incredible friends. I've had amazing relationships in Boston. I have a job lined up. I'm a better sister, a better daughter, a better roommate, a better friend now. And then she said, quote, but the only area in my life in which I have not grown is the area... Uh, of understanding of what I want out of love, what I want out of romance, what I understand about my own desire, my own passions. In this area, not only have I not developed, I think I have regressed. I think I am more scared, more unsure of myself. And I know myself on these things less than I did when I graduated from high school. My goodness, what a self-aware human being. What a beautiful human being to even write this, Carrie.
12: Yeah, I remember that young woman very well. Um, she was actually part of a focus group that we ran here. when We were trying to figure out uh, uh, some, some of the administrators here at Boston College tried to ran focus groups with students to try to figure out what was going on in terms of hookup culture and dating and relationships and uh, sexuality. And, and so we had a number of really wonderful students who came and shared, shared really deep and profound reflections like that. With us, it was stunning to me. And when I when I heard that young woman speak, I, honestly, I was heartbroken because you know we pride ourselves, especially here, this is a Jesuit university. We pride ourselves on educating the whole person, and, and to me, that's unacceptable. We're not doing our job if we're not helping students to navigate the most important parts of their lives. Yep. Uh, and that that's just heartbreaking to
1: me you know man is not an economic animal alone and you know the great alexander solzhenitsyn leaves a soviet gulag comes to the united states and everybody thinks he's going to hammer communism but he does quite the opposite he gives a lecture to everybody about the downsides of capitalism he's no friend of communism but he talks about the material and how the material can actually squelch out the spiritual and kill love And no one was expecting that from Alexander Solzhenitsyn and why it's one of the great talks in American history. By the way, you can go to Great American Rhetoric and you can look up Solzhenitsyn and look under A, not S. That's how they put everything there. We want to play a clip for you, Kerry, again from that talk at the Love and Fidelity Network and pick up on this duty and responsibility of a Jesuit school, for goodness sake, teaching the whole person.
12: I am terrified to start recognizing that universities and colleges today are places of great opportunity, great ideas, great ambition and achievement, but not great love. That between the ages of 18 and 22, or 23, if you really just need to take an extra year, <laughs> or 21 if you're like really excelling, like while you're here in college, this is a great time to fall in love. But you probably won't. And it's not because you don't want to. But it is because there is a culture that has sprung up, that has emerged, that's not s- going to support you ha- finding a great love alongside finding great ideas, great opportunities, great conversations, great friendships, great ambitions, great, ac- great accomplishments. To find a great love is also something we would, we would really like to help you with. You kind of have to do it on, yourself, by, on your own, but... We're certainly not helping to scaffold that, a culture that would help you do that.
1: I'm not sure what else you can add, but tell me what really, <laughs> what dug you in there, and why, do you, why did universities not talk about this, and what happened?
12: No, that's a great question, too. I mean, I, I, you know, I think in the United States, the, the universities. You, colleges and universities have really moved away from the in loco parentis model and so by and large, even though you know parents are entrusting for for a lot of money, parents are entrusting their their young sons and daughters to our care the the general rule of thumb is stay out of their business and and there's something important in that insight, mm-hmm. but what happened was i think we we went to to a far extreme on that and and I find that that college students really want a lot of help, and they 're not afraid of older adults uh, helping them with things uh, unlike pe- previous generations who didn 't trust anybody over the age of thirty right. I find that millennials crave conversations about their lives they they crave coaching, if you will. Um, I find that when I talk to uh, young male students, for instance, uh, as well as young female students. Actually, when I think about it, they are really receptive to life coaching sort of attitudes. And they, they, the more that I talk to them about this, the more they want to meet with me and talk to to me about this. And so they are really craving some help. But I think that we're assuming that they don't want any help, and that they don't want to be told how to live. Well, as a matter of fact, they don't want us to be overly directive. Or overly moralizing or judgmental, but they want conversation and it's you know it's it's not easy to walk that fine line uh, in having conversations that that are helpful but not intrusive you know but I think um, I think faculty and administrators and staff members who who are happy in their own lives and who are really um, who have who have their own children, perhaps, uh, who are going through these kinds of things, they can be really helpful. But most people are sort of nervous about talking about these kinds of things.
1: You know, I'd I tell you a story. I was on a plane, uh, about, probably about a, um, well over a year ago. A attractive young lady was sitting next to me, and I was writing a column and battling out a column about love. Um, and I was getting close to my little girl's birthday. And I had never known anything like that kind of love for a child. I'd known a love for, for a woman finally, in my and I had waited way too long to know that. Because I actually was a millennial before there were millennials in this respect. I was afraid of saying I love you to somebody, and I confess this in this column. I had never properly said it to a woman until I was 41 years old, because I was afraid of the rejection. Who knows why? I, I don't know, but I didn't. And I write about this, and then I get to the part of the column where I'm typing, and I'm going to read you some of the words, because I could feel her reading this. And as she was reading it, she, I could feel her crying as I was reading it. And I wrote, as I quoted a line from Julian Barnes, and Barnes, Barnes had said, I was 32 when we met and 62 when she died, speaking of his wife. She was the heart of my life and the life of my heart. You put two things together, Julian Barnes wrote, that have not been put together before and the world has changed. And then I wrote, that's the power of love. The world is changed by it. Without love, the world is barren. The day my wife told me she was pregnant, my world changed again. In what is the greatest love song ever written about childbirth, the narrator in Bruce Springsteen's Living Proof says this, In his mother's arms it was all the beauty I could take, like the missing words to some prayer that I could never make. It was and is all the beauty I can take, watching our daughter grow and laugh and play, the heart of my life, the life of my heart, the answer to a prayer I never even knew to pray. I turned around and she was weeping. And I started a conversation as deep as I'd ever had with another human being who was about to get married and was crying, she told me, because I asked her why. Her husband just told her she did not want to have kids. Her husband-to-be. On the back end, we're going to talk about what happened there, Carrie, and then talk to you about some of those same kinds of conversations I am sure you have had with these young people. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And we're talking for the hour about dating, about love with the love doctor and a professor of philosophy at Boston College, Kerry Cronin. And you're listening to Alan Jackson And it was a day when it was that simple And it was never simple So let's not go back and be too nostalgic But back in the day My parents, so many folks I know The guy met a girl, he asked her out And if it was right They moved along and they started a family No existential dread No, I'm not ready yet No, let's hook up Just didn't exist Or if it did, no one. it wasn't codified into the culture And we're talking for the hour with the Doctor of Love, who also happens to be the Professor of Philosophy at Boston College. And that's a that's a nickname she's been given, by the way, on campus because of this class we're about to describe and discuss. Carrie Cronin joins us. Carrie, so you've you've diagnosed the problem, you've gotten to know the kids, and you start a dating class. Talk about that.
12: <laughs> well, it wasn't actually a dating class. I, I might maybe I would get fired for that. <laughs> but it, was a, <laughs> it was a senior capstone seminar. You know, many colleges and universities have these uh, capstone seminars. It was a one credit only pass fail seminar once a week meeting with juniors and seniors to sort of discuss, you know, so what, what, what things have you discovered about yourself and life in your education? What questions do you still have? And we talked about sort of large things like the future and the role of money in your life and that sort of thing. And, and, I, uh, I used to save two weeks to discuss relationships, friendships and romantic relationships. And, and after I had discovered that uh, this, the hookup culture was such a dominant script, I decided in one of these seminars that I would ask my students to go on a, tr- what, a traditional date. And I, uh, they all seemed pretty excited about that. The first group was about 15 students in a class. And so I said, "Oh, you know, could you, by the end of the semester, could I want you to ask somebody out and go on a date. And so week after week, they came back, and they kept talking about it. Oh, I don't know who to ask. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to do this, blah, blah, blah. And I, I kept wondering why this was so complicated. Well, we get to the end of the semester, and only one of the 15 students had, had been able to do it, which I thought was really shocking, because, again, these are really bright, wonderful, beautiful students. And so the next semester... During the drop ad period I said to them you're going to have an assignment to go on a to ask somebody on a date go on a date and and re- write a reflection about the date and you have to do this assignment I won't pass you if you don't
1: It was a requirement.
12: It, it was a requirement. <laughs> I had to good. make it a requirement because yep. I realized they would just keep talking about it and talking about it and never doing it. So so I said you could drop the class right now. I think 3 three students dropped out right away but three more came in and so that second semester, everybody did it, but it was sort of a mess. They didn't know what they were doing. It, you know, we had lots of lots of students would come in and tell funny stories about it. So by the third semester, I I sort of wised up. I now when I give this assignment, I give this assignment now in my uh, freshman to my freshmen who take a great books class with me, um, and I I give them a, a sheet. Of paper that has instructions. I had to come up with a set of instructions because what I realized was that hookup culture had not only become the dominant social script, dating as a script had been completely lost. They didn't know how to do it. And so I, I needed to give them a set of instructions so they have to follow a set of my rules. Um, and on the back side of the, the sheet is a list of 50 inexpensive dates around Boston, you know, so that it doesn't have to be a burden. Yeah. And uh, and so from there, we've gone in every semester. Uh, I give it now to freshmen because, you know, freshmen are, uh, though my students this year will have this assignment in February, I, I make it an optional assignment. Uh, it's a, They'll get bonus points for it on an exam. And so they all jump on that. Uh, but... I, honestly, I've had students I had students who, who started coming to that class where it was required, and students would say to me openly in front of other students, I am taking this class so that you will make me go on a date. I want to do this. Wow, that's and fascinating. And I would say, or you could just go on a date. You don't need to take a whole yeah. class just to do that. But they're, it's so outside of the norm yep. that they need an excuse. Well, it's and interesting,
1: Carrie. What's interesting is that they, it seems to me they're more at ease hooking up than just asking somebody out. And that's remarkable. I wanted to rip through some of these rules of yours, if you don't mind. And one of them, by the way, uh, like on the top of it all, is that uh, obviously it's alcohol-free because we all know that what the students use alcohol for does not at all lend itself to getting to know someone. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's to not know them. That's why we do it and allow us to do things we wouldn't do but for the alcohol so here are the nine rules. You must ask someone who you are legitimately interested in, and you must ask them in person. Texts can be sent to arrange a range of time and place, but the invitation must be expended face to, extended face to face. Two, the date should last between 60 and 90 minutes, no more, no less. It should be a daytime date. You must pay for a date is four, but you should spend no more than ten dollars. Five, there is no alcohol. Six, no physical interaction. Seven, you are allowed to say that it is not for an assignment, that it is for an assignment. Eight, you can only divulge your plan with three people. Nine, when you ask the person, plan for your date no more than three days in advance. And ten, optional, submit a two-page reflection paper to Professor Cronin while this assignment is ungraded and it would be impossible to ensure its completion. It is a worthwhile endeavor. So go forth, students of Boston College, and find love. And if not love then at least a story. That is so delightful, and I'm just shocked that we are, we're, we've come to this, but thank you for doing it. What's the reaction now? You've gone from 15 students. How many students are interested in this now at, at Boston College?
12: Oh, well, you know, that's the most fun. The, the most fun thing that I realized that, happened, um, that, that happens uh, is this. I actually am, in any given semester, I'm giving the dating assignment to maybe 25 students. But although I, I give a lecture on campus each year, uh, in, so and usually there's three, three to 400 students at that lecture, and I say, if you're here, you have the dating assignment now. But the interesting thing is that, that I found that happened was not that just 15 or 25 or even 300 students went on dates, what happened was, as soon as the dating assignment was on a piece of paper, students would bring it back to their dorm rooms, their apartments. And, and here, most of the upper class students live in apartment-style um, suites. And so they have six or eight roommates. And so what was happening was they were bringing it back to their apartments, and it was people were discussing it. It became such a buzz. Wow. And and it really is, everybody knows here, if students start to ask you out, you'll, they'll often hear someone respond, oh, is this a Cronin date? So, <laughs> And I always say to students, that's fine, <laughs> that blame fine. it on me, exactly. you know, because that'll make you feel a little less nervous, and it can be funny and something to talk about for the first five minutes of the date and laugh about. That's great. Make it a fun thing. That is, it is. It, it's that, supposed to be fun. It, it is
1: supposed to be fun and it, it's delight. Right. It's a delight and it's supposed to be scary too. And think exactly. about how many scary things are fun. You know, we go up in, in gigantic slides and pummel on down and pay money for that. But that, that's dating. <laughs> Let's face it. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, you, you know, you, you have all these kids who've done these dates. Um, mm. can you talk about some student reflections? From their dates. Give us a couple of, you know, what have you learned from your students? What have you taught them and what have you learned from them?
12: Oh, I have learned so much from them. It's, it's, it's outrageous how much I have learned from them. I have, I've got uh, a locked file drawer full of these reflections. And, and one of the things that I want to point out that I do in the class too is they're not only giving me uh, their reflections after they've gone on a date, but we we find class time for them to talk about it with each other and tell the story of their dating. And what they mostly want to talk about is the story of the ask, that, that asking someone out in person is, is the big hurdle, and it's the thing that they love to, to retell. And what I have I've found in Reflections is some of my favorites are uh, pieces of, refl- of student Reflections have to do with how anxious they feel during the ask. I had a student uh, years ago who wrote um, this beautiful reflection on on asking a guy out, and she said, she described it thus, she said, my heart was pounding and my palms were sweating as I I approached my target. And when I read it, I thought, "Uh oh, wait a minute, <laughs> what's going on?" But these are the kinds of ways that they feel, and they they write beautifully. But you
1: know, you do you know what's really going Earth on there? I think what's going on there is it's the red badge of courage. People love <laughs> to write about that which they overcome. This that's makes exactly them right. this makes them proud. And my goodness, that's better than hey, here's how I hooked up. And now it's one of those dark memoirs about how someone took too many pills and offed herself. Uh, that's Perry, exactly Carrie right. I, I can tell exactly you right.
12: you know the, the, your point about stories is absolutely correct. One of the one of the things I say to students about hooking up is that that that's part of the game of hooking up, right? Is to, you know, on Sunday morning or Monday morning telling the story of who you hooked up with on the weekend and getting the points for it and the social status
0: for yep, it. Yep.
12: But telling the story of going on a date, students will say Wow, people came up to me and congratulated me for having asked somebody out. And People are impressed that I did that. They're experiencing their own bravery, their own courage. And as I often point out to them, you're for the first time asking for what it is you truly long for, what you, you really want, you what you best. are nervous about, and what you think. Maybe this could really lead to something. And,
1: and what we were almost encoded by God to, to ask for, too.
0: That's
1: right. Carrie Cronin, thank you so much for what you do. In fact, one couple even got married because of the yes. work that this professor did. The Doctor of Love, Professor of Philosophy at Boston College. Carrie Cronin, thank you so much for joining us.
12: Thank you so much, Lee. It was really a joy.
1: You bet.